We are in Acts chapter 18, as we know, because Tom just read that to us, verses 1 through 17 this morning. It is the story, if you were listening to Tom as he read the text or reading along with him, you will notice that this is the time when Paul comes to Corinth in the storyline of the book of Acts. There's a number of interesting points being made in this text, and we want to look at them. We're going to kind of peruse through the entirety of the text and try to identify the central theme of the text, but at the same time, we want to see all the various intricacies that I think are important to help us with the understanding of the central theme of the text. Um, And I think that the result will be something that will minister to you and encourage you as well as challenge you as we work our way through. I I would argue this text is very, very important at a number of levels. But there are specifically a couple little statements that are made in, in the midst of the story that are absolutely crucial that we get. And so that's where we, we're going to end up camping on these, these stories that are absolutely essential. Um, and uh, so that's the point of the study this morning. Let's have a word of prayer and then we will uh, get in there. Lord, help us as we open this text this morning that we will be able to see and understand Your Word to us. And that we will be able to, by Your Spirit, be able to comprehend um, and respond to by faith, uh, the, the proclamation of Your Word in this story. Uh, and Lord, I pray that You will um, just change us and draw us closer to You to worship and to magnify and to glorify You. So uh, we ask You to catch our hearts and, and inflame us for You to, uh, this morning. In Your name I pray. Amen. So Paul has left, left Athens at this point in time. It is interesting as we work our way to the text, you need to understand, although these two cities, Athens and Corinth, are only about 50 miles apart, they are different like as if they were worlds away. What do we know about Athens? A lot of smart people. Good. What else? Yeah, knowledge and, ele- and, and, and wisdom is like not just elevated, but it's like the very core of their reason for existence almost, isn't it? Yes, all of that, all that more uh, intellectual uh, uh, realm is the thing that was really important to the people of Athens. We come to Corinth only 50 miles away and they're radically different. The whole city is radically different. If you could feel the heartbeat of Corinth, what you'd feel in the heartbeat of Corinth is commerce. It's all about making money. Remember what they said in Athens? They just sat around all day for one purpose, and that's to talk about new ideas. In Corinth, they get up in the morning, they live their life for one purpose. It's to make cash. To make money. But there's actually another purpose to it as well. They get up in the morning to make money so that they can live as extravagant a lifestyle as possible. It kind of sounds like something familiar to us, doesn't it? Does it sound a little familiar? Yeah, it sounds a little bit like where we live today, doesn't it? Everything's about the mighty dollar and living extravagantly. Arriving, as it were. There's a lot of sexual immorality in the city as well. Oh, it still sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Very, very contemporaneous to where we are in our, in our world today. It's interesting that Corinth, I said it was very much all about commerce and making money, Corinth, historically, and still is to this day, the city of Corinth still exists today, it is on a spot where international travel all through history took place. Because the narrowing of the, of, of the land between the, the bodies of water, and so they shipped across 
uh, right, through, right through Corinth. So it was an international uh, commerce location, probably the most significant international uh, commerce uh, city of its day, of Paul's day. Now, obviously, if the gospel takes hold there, it's going to, by definition, begin to spread from there, won't it? If it's international commerce, it's going to spread. Well, Paul goes from Athens into this city, Corinth, that is at one level corrupted by immorality, another level corrupted by absolute pursuit of commerce and riches, as if that was the answer to life. And that's where he finds himself starting in chapter 18, verse 1. You'll notice right away in 18.1, he goes to Corinth. Then 2, verse 2, he, it says he finds a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. So once he arrives in Corinth, he, Corinth, he finds out about, about this person, Aquila, this guy Aquila, and his wife Priscilla. They're Jews. What they were is they were Jews who lived in Rome and they were driven out of Rome because all Jews were driven out of Rome. They were required to leave Rome. Persecution, hatred, prejudice, the whole nine yards were, were in Rome. And so Aquila and Priscilla, along with all the rest of the Jews, were driven out. Aquila and Priscilla chose to come to Corinth. Now obviously, as we know, God ordained that. But they chose to come to Corinth. And in coming to Corinth, they set up their business. And the business was the same as Paul's business. And we see that in verse 3. And because he was the same, uh, of the same trade, he stayed with them. In other words, Paul was a tent maker, and so was Aquila and Priscilla. Now, they had already established their business. He arrives and finds out that Aquila and Priscilla, these two other Jews, are in town and they also make tents and he goes to them. A lot of people have tried to speculate when Aquila and Priscilla became believers. You can't know that, although I think there's a couple clues here. And the clues are, firstly, in verse 2, it says, Luke records, he found a Jew named Aquila. Notice it, what it doesn't say. A believer by the name of Aquila. It's a Jew by the name of Aquila. Now, obviously, Paul is Jewish, but if you've read Philippians, you know he doesn't think much of his Jewishness, does he? In other words, it's not highly elevated for Paul anymore, is it? So he identifies this person as a Jew, not as a believer, because Paul's identity is primarily in being a believer in Jesus Christ. Most likely at this point in time, the first clue, verse 2, that he identifies he and his wife as Jews, most likely they're not believers. But secondly, we find in verse 3, he goes and stays with them. Why? Because they're believers? No, because they're doing the same thing. They do the same job. They have the same income stream. And he stays with them, and they housed him as a co-worker that was in the same field, who is obviously not trying to establish a business, but is traveling. If he was trying to establish a business, I suspect they probably wouldn't house him. But he's traveling. And so they take him in. Why? Because he's a believer? And because they're a believer? No, it's because they're in the same trade. Just wanted to lay that out as a little bit of a background. Aquila and Priscilla, we find out later they do become believers, but at this point in time, verse 1, 2, and 3, they're not yet believers. 
Let's move off of that. <clears throat> Verse 4, Paul, uh, Luke references what, what Paul uh, uh, traditionally does. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. The idea of Jews and Greeks is not so much Jews and Greeks in the synagogue. He's in the synagogue persuading who? The Jews primarily, and the Greeks he's most likely referencing as he throws that in as well during the week. Sabbath day, he's going to the synagogue and he's, he's challenging and exhorting and ministering to the Jewish people who are in the synagogue. During the week, he's out with the Greeks in the marketplace and he's doing what? Wait, no, isn't he just selling tents? No, he's ministering the gospel, isn't he? Hold that thought. That's an important point in the storyline here. So he's trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And notice the, the, the structure is, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And the, 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 stru the structure there in the original languages was an ongoing, constant persuading, trying to persuade. Okay, with that in mind, we come to verse 5. It's interesting, it says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, and you think back on previous messages and you remember that, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. A couple things, this becomes a, one of the very important key statements in this storyline of 1-17. through 17. Let's start at the end. He's testifying something. He's testifying something to the Jews, primarily, I already mentioned the Greeks earlier, but it's primarily he's focused on the Jews early on. And it says he's testifying what? To the Jews that the Christ, and Christ means what again? The Messiah was Jesus. So he is spending his time challenging Jews who know the Old Testament and he's on, in an ongoing way trying to persuade them, verse 4, by testifying, proclaiming, giving testimony to what? That the Messiah that they knew was prophesied in the Old Testament, because every Saturday when they were in the, the synagogue, that's what they heard about. And he spends his time doing what? Proclaiming to them, testifying to them, giving testimony to the reality that the Messiah is Jesus. Now I want to pause on that for a second because it's really important that we get this. I want you to notice what's not in here. If I may just point it out. And I think this is really important when we talk about the Gospel. You'll notice that it doesn't say he was occupied with his conversion story. It doesn't say that, does it? Is that what it says? No. There's two things it says here. He's occupied with the Word, which is what? He was occupied with the Scriptures. That's number one. He's occupied with the Scriptures. And in light of number one, being occupied with the Scriptures... He is, and here's what it means, he is testifying about what the Scriptures say. Does that make sense? He's declaring. He's communicating. He's, 
he is presenting to these Jewish people from the Scriptures that the Christ that they knew was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament was completely fulfilled in Jesus. Now, why do, I, why do I unpack that that way? Because the authoritative, we know this, right? The authoritative gospel comes not from my story, does it? It comes from the story that's in the Word. Correct? At best, it's secondary. Absolutely. The, and that's why you see Paul not here trumpeting his story about the road to Damascus. Right? Quite to the contrary, it's not even seemingly mentioned because he says he's occupied with the Word. He's occupied with the Scriptures and he's testifying the Scriptures to them. Does that make sense? So he's testifying the Scriptures to them over and over again and specifically he's focused not in his experience. He's focused in on this is the declaration. Remember, we talked about declaration last week, didn't we? The declaration of the truth, of the reality that Jesus is the promised, prophesied Messiah that you heard about every Saturday, every Sabbath, in the reading of the Word, in the message preached on the Sabbath, it was always about the promised Messiah. And that's where Paul lives in this conversation that went for who knows how long at this point in time. Now, I want to stop on one more word in verse 5. And this is the, the important, this is a very important word. Notice what it says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied. That's an intriguing word that Luke chooses. He was occupied with the Word, and you could, you could also add in, he was occupied with preaching the Word. He was occupied with preaching the Word because he was occupied with the Word. It's an intriguing statement that Luke makes here about Paul. Silas and, Silas and Timothy arrive in Corinth. And when they arrive in Corinth, they walk around Corinth looking for Paul. And when they find Paul, the thing that's evident as they find Paul is they find him occupied with something. We could use a variety of words. Consumed with something. Focused on something. Transfixed on something. Craving something. Given over to something. Are all those legitimate descriptions, you think? I think they're perfectly legitimate. We could go with many, many others. That's the presentation we have with regard to Paul from Luke, who most likely got it from Timothy and Silas. This is Timothy and Silas' description of the Paul they found. Now, I don't think for a second that, that Timothy and Silas showed up and was shocked by that. I don't also think that 
Luke was surprised by that. Because that's who Paul was, wasn't it? Paul was somebody who was consumed, who was enthralled with something. He was given over to something. Now the word oftentimes, and I think it's really important to see this, but the word is oftentimes used for, it's used in what setting do you think? The word occupied. Say it louder. Okay, potentially occupation or job, but probably not in this case. Think of another term, another setting for occupied. An army comes in and occupies. An army comes in and conquers and rules. Does that make sense? Could I just ask you a quick question? At one point in time with Saul on the opposing side, I used the term, the word correctly, the name correctly. Was Saul at one point in time on the wrong side? On the losing side? Yes. And what happened? He got occupied, didn't he? Didn't he? By the Spirit, he was occupied by the Scriptures. The Scriptures took over, right? The Spirit used the Scriptures to transform his life. Didn't, didn't he? It's absolutely the case. So, it should be unsurprising that the one who was at one point in time in the kingdom of darkness and was captured, I'm going to continue using the war mentality, was captured by Christ, it should not be surprising, should it? That that occupying force should continue? Or in this case, to be theologically correct, the occupying one, Holy Spirit, should continue? Wouldn't that make sense? And if the occupying one would take four, would still be there, would you not expect that the, the thing the occupying one uses would occupy the one who has been captured? Would you not think that would be the case? Would that not make sense? Ken's saying yes because he's been in the military. You get it, right? I mean, you get it. It makes complete sense, doesn't it? Of course it does. The difference between most occupying forces and the Holy Spirit is, is the absolute key difference, though. Because usually occupying forces are done against someone's will, right? Usually an occupying force, an occupying army, comes in against the person's will and remains against that person's will almost always, doesn't it? But because of superior force, superior power, they force them, they force that captive to do what? To obey. Isn't that how it happens? Against their will. Correct? That's how it almost always happens. However, contrary to that, when the Spirit comes into someone, what happens? According to Ephesians 2. He changes their will by giving them a new heart. Yes, and He gives them a new heart, doesn't He? 
He changes them, and that change causes something different about that person, doesn't it? So although they're occupied, just like we get it, it's been going on since the fall, hasn't it? Even though they are occupied, the difference is the one who is occupying changes the heart of the one who is occupied, gives them a new heart according to Ephesians chapter 2, so that that person who once was of a different kingdom loves what they once hated. They now are part of the new kingdom, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness, and they love the new kingdom of God, and they love the king of the kingdom. Does that make sense? And the ramifications of that is that as they are given that new heart, they also love the words, or maybe we should just use the word, that's the word that Luke uses here, of the king, of the new kingdom, of the kingdom of light. Does that make sense? So it should come as no surprise when we read in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. I've I got to be honest, I love the fact that Luke just didn't say he was occupied with preaching the gospel. Or tent making, for that matter. Even worse. Because that would be an old, old kingdom perspective. Kingdom of darkness perspective. But I love the fact that he doesn't just say he was occupied with testifying to the Jews that Christ was the Messiah. The text says he was occupied with the Word. And being occupied with the Word would do what in Paul's life? It would would continue the transformation process so that he would what? Testify. Right? I'm sorry? And persuade men. Exactly. And that's exactly where I was going. The Bible says... Because I know, in, in 1 Thessalonians, because he, he says, I know the fear of God, I persuade men. How does Paul know the fear of God? Because, because he's occupying what? The Word. And the Spirit is using that Word in his life. And as he is occupied with the Word, he realizes the fear of God because we cannot understand the fear of the Lord without the Word. We cannot. He's occupied with the Word. As a result, he understands the fear of God. As a result, he persuades men. Verse 5. And two verses away from the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 we just quoted, he says, the, the love of Christ controls me. How do we know? How would Paul possibly know about the, the love of Christ? By the Word and the Spirit working in him so he could see it. Correct? Does that make sense? So I love how he says it in in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. The order is important. They find Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia and they, they, they see that Paul 
was occupied with the Word. The ramifications of him being occupied with the Word is that he is testifying that the Messiah is, is Jesus. That Christ is Jesus. Now this is something that should be absolutely not new to anybody here. Because I've said it so many times. But in, in, in many, many churches, what do we hear about evangelism? Number one, Christians aren't evangelizing, right? That's what you hear. Christians aren't evangelizing. Number two, you need to evangelize. Isn't that what we hear? I mean, you hear it everywhere, don't you? That's not a biblical construct, friends. Why don't Christians evangelize? Or to use the more biblical term here, this text, why don't Christians testify? Say it louder. They're not occupied with the Word. This is really key. I don't know if you've ever been there. I know I have. If I may just use the example, when I was, I remember when I was a student at Word of Life. And I remember the call to evangelize, because Word of Life is a big time, Ganell's over here smiling right now. Word of Life is a big time evangelistic organization. And, and the challenge was always put before us, wasn't it, Ganell? Gotta evangelize, gotta evangelize, gotta evangelize, you got to evangelize. I would feel so guilty because I wasn't evangelizing. I wasn't testifying. And you know what I would do? That guilt, I don't know about you, Gunnell, but that guilt motivated me. It motivated me to do what? What do you think? To go evangelize. You know how long that lasted? Not long. Not long. Because, you know, here's the crazy thing about guilt. Guilt is never a good motivator. It's a horrible motivator. Here's what happens. I'm guilty about not evangelizing, and so I start to evangelize. What happens to guilt as I start to evangelize? It goes away. Now where's my motive? It's gone. It went away because I started evangelizing. And so now what have I set up in my life? Here's what I've set up. As the motive for evangelizing disappears, then guess what else starts disappearing? Evangelism starts disappearing, and as evangelism starts disappearing, or testifying starts disappearing, then what kicks in, do you think? Guilt comes in again. Anybody else been there? And then the guilt motivates you, so you do what again? You talk to one or two people. Yes. And then the guilt goes away. And so as the guilt goes away, the motivation goes away. And so I stop evangelizing again, and I get guilty again. Does that make sense? But you know what's really insidious about it? It's not, if, if it just stayed there, it'd be bad. But it doesn't. It just doesn't. It's kind of like weight loss. Many of us have, have lost weight and gained it and lost it and gained it and lost it and gained it and lost it and gained it, right? It's like the ever never-ending cycle. 
Why is that? Because the motivation's all wrong. We have whatever motivation it is, but it's always the wrong motive. And so as a result of it being the wrong motive, the weight starts dropping off because we're motivated by this thing, whatever it is. But then as the weight starts dropping off, again, what happens? Motivation goes away. And then what happens? We all know the story. You're at 250. You feel guilty or whatever's driving it. And so you start working on taking the weight off. And then the weight starts dropping. And the motivation disappears. And before you know it, you're at 280. And then the Whatever that motive comes back in, maybe a wedding coming up, it may be um, guilt, it may be a sore back, it may be whatever, right? And, and, and so you get motivated again, and so the weight starts dropping off, the motive goes away, and next thing you know, you're at 320. And that's how it happens, doesn't it, Abby? You're in the medical field, you know how it goes, Right? It, you never go back to the 280 or 270 you were at first. It just keeps going higher and higher and higher. Each time you put it on, it goes further. It's the same thing. Guilt-based motivation never, on a, on, a, on a horizontal level, never accomplishes anything. But more importantly, on a spiritual level, this was really crucial, on a spiritual level, it never glorifies Christ. It just doesn't. Because it's not fear of God, it's love of Christ. And where do we get fear of God? Where do we get a comprehension of fear of God? Where do we get a comprehension and understanding of love of Christ? Where do we get it from again? The Word of God. And so what happens instead, people get guilty and they go out and they evangelize and then the guilt goes away. Why? Because they're not what? They're not if I use an old King James word, Jim, they're not stayed on him, right? Because who never changes? God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? Everything else changes. Everything else is blowing like the wind. But he's always the same. Where do you find with Paul? He's occupied with the Word. And the result of being consumed with an occupation, by the way, if I may get off occupation in just a second, but one more thing. Occupation is not, well, we'll be here today and, and tomorrow, tomorrow we'll be gone and then three days later we'll be back and then five days later we'll be gone and then 12 days later we'll be back. That's not how it works, does it? That's not occupied, is it? That's visiting. Does that make sense? If I'm here today and gone three days from now and then I'm back again five days and then gone till 12, day 12 and then I'm back and then I leave again at day 13 and then I'm back again day 20, that's visiting. Does that make sense? That's visiting. But he's occupied with the Word. That doesn't mean he's not building tents. But in the midst of building tents, what's he doing? He's occupying. He's occupying what? The Word of God. Wait, let's not jump to evangelizing. He's occupying the Word. He's occupied with the Word of God. Because evangelizing is coming out of that. It's the outflow. That's what it is. 
You know, if, if, if there's a river flowing into a, into a, on a creek bed and somebody dams it up, if the river's flowing, what's going to happen? It's going to fill up, right? And once it fills up, what's going to happen? It's going to overflow the dam, won't it? It'll flow down the, 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 the causeway, won't it? Is that not inevitable? Isn't it? I mean, I hope that makes sense to everybody. If there is a river or a creek and a dam is built and the creek flows, it's going to fill up. And when it fills up, it will overflow down the causeway. Where is the evangelism in all that picture that I just created? Is the creek above the dam, above the, above the pond or lake now? Is that it? Is it the lake? It's the causeway, isn't it? The only way water flows down the causeway is what? If water's flowing into the dammed up area. Correct? It's the only way. But once the creek is flowing in, what inevitably happens? The water flows over the causeway. The gospel flows out. The evidence that we're not occupied with the Scripture, with the Word, is clear. If, 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 if the causeway is dry, something's wrong. Correct? It doesn't mean I should get down there and splash water up on the causeway. There's something wrong somewhere. Either the creek's not flowing or something else is wrong. Correct? Because the natural way of things, if the water's flowing down, it's going to keep flowing because water always seeks its own level. And so we find Paul being occupied with the Word of God. This should be a challenge to us. It should absolutely be a challenge to us not to evangelize. Is there a call to evangelize in the Scriptures? Absolutely there is. Is it commanded? You bet it is. No question. But what do we always say about, about, about imperatives in the Scripture? It's always preceded by indicatives. And the indicatives in this case is the Spirit at work, right? And the new heart in a, in a true believer, isn't it? And the ramifications of that indicative, the statement of reality, is that the causeway is going to be dry or wet. Wet. The causeway is going to be wet. I have long ago stopped telling people who don't evangelize they need to repent of not evangelizing. The repentance lies upstream. It always lies upstream. It never is the lack of evangelism. Moving on, because we've got to watch our time, verse 6, obviously the Jews, as Jesus, or I'm sorry, as Paul was occupied with the word and testifying that Jesus is, is the Messiah, they opposed him and reviled him. Two words given, opposed and reviled. So they, they rejected what he had to say, and they were absolutely ridiculing him and shutting him down. Get the picture? Very active. And as that continue, and the implication of verse 6 in the beginning is that it was continuing. It was not a moment in time thing. It was continuing. And the result of it was that as Jesus told his disciples to do earlier and earlier and actually saw other people doing it, 
he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, which comes out of the Old Testament. If I remember, it's Jeremiah. I could be wrong on that, but I think it's Jeremiah 33. Um, my mind's a little fuzzy on that one. Um, but the point is that we've seen over and over again, Paul, in his perspective, being led by the Spirit, as he'd given them the gospel, he'd made it really clear to them, he laid it out extensively to them. This is not a, just a, 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 a five-minute um, Romans Road presentation. This is an extensive presentation over a period of time, and they began to oppose and revile him. The result is, symbolically, he took off his garment. Jesus talked about shaking the dust off your sandals. Um, earlier, somebody else shook off the dust. Here, he shakes the dust out of his garments, the dust being of that place in Corinth, in the synagogue. And, and as the symbolism of that is, basically, I'm leaving you. And, and I'm turning my back on you. It's a pretty bold statement. Isn't it? It's a pretty, pretty, pretty dramatic statement that Paul is making as he shakes, shakes the garments off. And his response to them is, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. I've given you the gospel hope. I've laid it out clear. You have received it and rejected it. You have received it through your ears and you have opposed it every step of the way and you have reviled it and reviled the messenger. So he shakes the dust off and goes on his way. It's a very, what's the word I'm looking for? Politically incorrect view of evangelism today, isn't it? It, I, we've got to be honest, this, and this, the reason why I'm pausing this is it shows up Old Testament and New Testament. I know it's, it's descriptive, but it shows up repeatedly, Old Testament and New Testament. The people reject, and it seems like what's going on is the speaker by the Spirit is evaluating, have they gotten clearly the gospel? Have they been given it? And have they drawn the line in the sand and said no? It sounds like to me. Does that make sense? I think it's this one particularly. That's a good, that's a good question because earlier he said it before. Uh, and I think it's just for this city because you'll find as you move on through Acts, he continues to go to synagogues first but he's talking about here in Corinth. Yeah, but for Corinth, he's saying, I've given you the gospel. I've laid it out clear. I've laid it out extensively. I've answered all your disagreements and rejections. You're reviling and opposing. I'm done with you. That never happens anymore. And I question why. Because I think it's appropriate to recognize that it happens repeatedly, Old and New Testament. And he says, your blood, as in the consequences for your, your living, for your lives, is on your heads. He's talking about the judgment day. It's on you. It's on you. I'm innocent. I've given you everything that is needed for salvation. Obviously, it's up to the Spirit to do it, though, do the work. Of 
course. So he goes on in verse uh, 6 and says, For now on I will go to the Gentiles. Again, as I just said, he's talking about in Corinth. <clears throat> so verse 7, then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Interesting where he goes, right? I love the fact that he goes right next door. Probably a Gentile, but he's described as a worshiper of God, not a proselyte, not a believer, but he has probably been going to the synagogue enough to learn about Yahweh. So he's absorbed enough data that he's a follower of what he knows about God. Not a believer yet, as in not, not one who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, but he is a follower of God. So he goes over to Titus, uh, Justice's house, next to the synagogue. You get the sense that Paul's a little bit in your face here to the Jews at this point? Just a tad? Goes right next door? Says, I'll have meetings next door. <laughs> That's not so that the Jews can come over. It clearly is in your face. What's interesting is the next verse, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. What? What do you discover here? Well, at this point in time, what we discover is that the Jews en masse have rejected the call to repentance and the call to Christ, correct? However, in the midst of that mass rejection, as Paul has already been preaching in the synagogue, he has a few responses, doesn't he? Crispus has repented. And who's Crispus? The ruler of the synagogue. And I want you to notice, because it comes important in just a few seconds, the direct object there, the, is an exclusive statement. He is the ruler in the synagogue. He's the head. The head of the whole synagogue. He repents and believes in Jesus. He believed in the Lord together with his entire household. You know what that means? A couple things. Number one, that means that over at Titius' house, there's Titius, a believer in God, believer in the Lord, and Crispus in his household that are meeting next door. That's what that means. Crispus is no longer going to the synagogue. He's going to Titius' house. He and his household are going to Titus's house. Now, the ramification, that's pretty dramatic. And we can't get off Christmas's, the story of Christmas yet. We just can't. Okay? Because here's Crispus. He has everything to lose, does he not? As a ruler, he's the head of the synagogue. He's also a judge. He's a senator, a Jewish senator in the Jewish legal system in the midst of the Corinthian legal system. He's the head dude. He has everything to lose. He has nothing to gain. And Crispus identifies with Jesus. What? He is occupied. He's consumed with Jesus and walks away. And you know, you know what happens to Crispus? And there's only one way we know this. But Crispus loses his position. He's no longer the head of the synagogue. He's no longer in charge. 
He's no longer anything. You know how I know that? Well, here it is. Verse 17. And then they all seized Sosthenes. What's the next two words? The ruler. Direct object. Exclusivity. The ruler. He's the one who took over. And he became the ruler of the synagogue. Crispus, in identifying with Christ, lost everything. Could I just stop on that for a second to point out something? For Crispus, identifying with Jesus, there was no cost too high. Was there? Was there? As a brand new believer, perhaps only two or three days old, what does Crispus do? With his family, he walks away entirely from everything he knows. Now remember where we're at. We're in Corinth. And what are the two things we said were, were key in Corinth? Commerce and what? Status, extravagance, position, all of it. But when the Spirit came into his life, everything changed. Didn't it? Everything changed. And he became occupied, evidently, with the Word because he was willing to give up everything. For what? For Christ. And if you think, if you think that, 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 that maybe this is just a moment in time, it doesn't seem to be. It absolutely does not seem to be. He believed the Lord together with his entire household. And then it goes on and says in verse 8, and many of the Corinthians, that is referring to the Jewish, or the, I'm sorry, the, the Gentile uh, people in Corinth, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So we've got a movement going on here, unlike most places that Paul's been, right? Not a movement among the Jews, because the Jews, it's just Christmas and his family, basically, it looks like. And Aquila and Priscilla, we're going to find out in just a little bit. But the Corinthians, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So we have a movement, beginning of the church being formed. Verse 9, this is where it gets really intriguing to me. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, one night Paul's in bed, he's been ministering hard all day and building tents all day, he's now laying in bed, falling asleep, maybe you've already fallen asleep, he wakes back up again, if he had fallen asleep already, and he has a vision from the Lord, and in his vision the Lord says to him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. A couple of things that are really interesting about 9 and 10. We get a glimpse into Paul's life that we probably don't see except for one other place. What's that? No, not, not, besides the vision, we get a glimpse that Paul has a problem. Whoever said it, Paul has a problem with fear at this point. He's afraid. Why else would God say, do not fear? Now, is there any evidence anywhere else that, that this is true? 
Look over at 1 Corinthians. Interesting that Paul says something in 1 Corinthians. Hop over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear. And he, he doesn't stop there, does he? What's next? And in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not, be, might, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What do we discover about Paul in Corinth? Now, we don't know if this is going on elsewhere or not. We just know in Corinth. He was a man who was weak. He was a man who feared. He was a man who what? Trembled. We see it. And not just a little bit. Right? Much trembling. This is really important we see this. And God said to him, do not fear. Sound familiar? Joshua 1. God tells Joshua three times, do not fear. And then the people even repeat that back to Joshua for a fourth time. Actually, he repeats twice. So for a fourth and fifth time. You also see it where else? On the hill outside of, come on, we're coming into this season. Bethlehem with the shepherds, right? You see it there. And there's other places you see it as well. Do not fear. Do not fear. What's that? Pentecost, same thing. You see it over and over and over again. But why in every single case does God tell people do not fear? Why is it? Because they fear. And Paul didn't just fear at this point. He was trembling. Now, we don't know why he was trembling. It could be he's worn out. Could be, right? I mean, he's already been through a lot, hasn't he? Been through more than you and I have been through outside of the gospel. And he's gone through it with the gospel. I mean, if you get poked in the eye twice, do you fear getting poked in the eye a third time? Every time I go running, I kind of fear falling. Does that make sense to everybody? I don't kind of. I really do. I watch for every little pothole. I watch for every little stone and stick. I watch for everything. I run with a constant state of fear now. Does that make sense? You and routers, same thing. Absolutely. Does it make sense? Charles, you afraid of falling now? A little bit, right? Does that all make sense to everybody? How many times did it take, how many routers had to run across your wrist before you feared it? First one. How many times did I have to, did it take for me to fear falling when I'm running? I hate to say it, probably about seven or eight times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many times has Paul been through it? Right? How many times has he been through it? How many times has he been abused? 
and reviled and opposed and mocked and thrown in prison and beaten. Does it make sense that he would fear? We, we kind of put him on a pedestal and like, yeah, but, if, but, but I'm not Paul. <laughs> you're right, you're not, you're, you're not an apostle. But you are Paul. You are like Paul. You know why? Because he was a human and so are you. So am I. And he feared and he was in much trembling. The text tells us that very clearly. And God has to say to him, do not fear. You almost get a sense that Paul's kind of just, even though he's, he's preaching, right? He's proclaiming because the word of God is controlling him, right? The love of Christ is controlling him. The fear of God, the fear of God is, is motivating him, right? But you can almost get a sense like he's waiting for the next poke in the eye. Kind of half ready for it and bracing himself for it. Don't you get the picture? Why do I camp on this? Because I hear this from people, from people who claim to be believers all the time. Inevitably, why well, don't I evangelize? Because I am afraid. And could I, could I just pause that for a second just to ask you a question? Is that a biblical construct to be afraid? Well, yes. It's there. We are humans. We don't, we don't, we don't need to deny that. I mean, even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't real excited about going to the cross. Does that make sense? So it's not necessarily an unbiblical construct to find yourself in a position of fear or being afraid. But is it a biblical construct to therefore shut down? Is it a biblical construct, therefore, to not do anything? No. Why don't we? We'd like to say, well, I'm afraid, or I don't know what to say, which is just another word for fear, right? And we'd like to justify it because we're afraid. But you know what, what fear did for Paul? It's really intriguing to me. You know what fear did for Paul? It drove him to the one who casts out all fear. Didn't it? It drove him to the one who casts out all fear. And what does that look like for him to be driven to the one who casts out all fear? It looks like someone who is being occupied with God's Word. That's what it looks like. And so God miraculously speaks to the one who is occupied with God's Word. And therefore proclaiming in the midst of his fear and trembling, much trembling. And he speaks to him and says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Notice it doesn't say start speaking. Correct? It says go on speaking. His fear is trembling. Never thwarted him. And it's evident because he mentions, you remember how I was. Is that what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 or 2? He said, you know what I was like? You remember. You were there. You're Corinthians. I was speaking to you. And I was in much fear and trembling. But he kept on preaching because he was occupied with the word. And then God gives him a promise. I'm with you, which would not be new news to Paul, right? 
But he, then he gets good, uh, interesting new news. No one will attack you to harm you. He's talking about here in Corinth. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who what? Are my people. He's not talking about the Jews. He's talking about people who are captured by the gospel that Paul has been preaching, who are transformed by the power of the gospel as the Holy Spirit uses it in people's lives. Well, jumping down to verse 12, you see he continued, verse 11, he continued to preach the word of God among them. And I suspect, I could be wrong on this, but I suspect in verse 11, the preaching of the word in, it really quickly moved not just from, from evangelism, because evangelism kept going, he kept on proclaiming to lost people, but into developing people's depth of understanding of the word as he ministered the truth of biblical theology to them. But verse 12, then when Gallio was proconsul or governor of uh, Achaia, the Jews made a unified or united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, before Gallio. <clears throat> Their argument in verse 13 said, this man is per persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. They're trying to argue that what, what Paul is doing is presenting a new religion. Because remember we said that, that the Romans had all sorts of religions, but all religions had to be established by the Roman government. And so they were arguing Paul is giving a new government or new religion that the government has not approved. They were hoping to get him dealt with. <clears throat> Gallio's response as Paul, verse 14, is about to get open up his mouth and defend himself, which he always does, even before he's able to defend himself, Gallio speaks to the Jews and says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. In other words, what Gallio is saying is, when I look at what Paul's proclaiming, and when I look at what the Jews are proclaiming, it's the same thing. It's not a different religion. He's just explaining how what you believe is fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, Gallio gathered the truth of the gospel from Paul. Now, we don't know what eventually happened with that information of Gallio, but the point is he heard the gospel pretty clearly because he's able to parse it out and realize that, that what Paul is proclaiming is not a, a totally new religion. It's the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. He gets it better than the Jews do. Does that make sense? And so he tells them that he's going to do nothing about it. They need to deal with it. And what's interesting is verse 16 that he drives them out of the tribunal. Now, he himself didn't, but he got his soldiers to physically, aggressively drive them out. So all the Jews, like he's not just saying, no, I'm not going to try it. He, he, what? He get out of here and he sends his troops after them and they go fleeing. Okay, you get the picture? But what becomes very interesting is verse 17. As and we're not, I'm not sure exactly which way this goes, so I'm going to give you both ways. But it says, and, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Now, I'm not sure if, and I don't, I don't know if we can know, but I'm not sure if the, the they they talk about here are the Jews who are upset because it didn't work out, and this is Sosthenes' plan. Make sense so far, possibly? that grabbed Sosthenes and beat him, to, you know, beat him up real badly? 
Or if it's the soldiers, they grab him and beat him up. That's a possibility as well. Thirdly, it could be Greeks that were watching and do it. Does that make sense? The one, thing, the one group of people couldn't be was the, what do you think? It wouldn't have been the, the Christians that would have done that. And there's a good reason, what, reason why I say that, other than Christians wouldn't, I, I think true Christians wouldn't do that, hopefully, but there's a good reason why I say it. It's really interesting. So Sosthenes is the one that orchestrated this thing to try to get, to try to get Paul arrested and tried and convicted. When it didn't work out, some group of people, who knows who, grabs Sosthenes and beats him up in front of the tribunal. So in, in, in Gallio's view, they're beating him up. And even in that category, Gallio pays no attention to any of this. He's like, whatever. Beat him up. Knock him out. Don't care. Why is that so important? Why does Luke point out this? Really interesting. Flip back over to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Interesting, isn't it? No, no, they are different people. Historically, they're different people. Interesting, isn't it? And it wouldn't make any sense anyway. Why would a believer drag Paul in front of the tribunal? Interesting, isn't it? The guy who orchestrated the whole thing, the ruler of the synagogue, the one who enforces Jewish law, is beaten up by somebody, and later on, the second ruler who replaced the first ruler who came to Christ gives up everything as well. And he turns to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The power of the Holy Spirit is greater than all. Two people, although the Jews in general in Corinth did not embrace Christ and the gospel, two rulers in a brief period of time turned their backs entirely upon everything. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Hebrews chapter 11. Remember the story of Moses? He had all the wealth of Egypt and he considered what? The riches of Christ more valuable. He considered the riches of Christ more valuable. When you start putting these, these, these pieces of the puzzle together in this, pa this passage of Romans in uh, Acts 18, what do you see? There's a unified theme, isn't there? Maybe afraid. Maybe, right? Maybe afraid. Maybe, maybe really afraid. Maybe you even have physical trembling over what could happen. You stand up for Christ. What do you do? You stand for Christ anyway, don't you? Why? Why do you stand up for Christ anyway? Well, the reason why is because the Spirit has been at work in you, transforming you, right? 
giving you a new heart, firstly, correct? He's giving you a new heart, number one. Then number two, in light of giving you a new heart, He is continuing His good work in you, right? Philippians 1.6, until when? What does it say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is He who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And elsewhere it says, He who began the good work in you, actually it's 1.6, He who began the good work in you will to continue to do it till when? The day of perfection. Right? Which is the day when we're with Jesus. What do we see in Acts chapter 18? We have three examples, actually more. We will find out Aquila and Priscilla as well. And we also see uh, Chris, uh, this uh, guy, um, uh, Titius. No cost too high. If the Spirit is at work in Paul, in Silas, in Timothy, in Crispus, in Sosthenes, in um, Titius, in Aquila, in Priscilla, you know what's going to happen with those people? He's not merely going to save them. He's not merely going to rescue them from the, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, is he? The evidence is really clear in the storyline. He doesn't merely rescue them from light or from darkness to light, kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God. He doesn't merely give them a new heart. He doesn't merely uh, make, adopt them as sons, Ephesians chapter 2. He doesn't merely give them faith to believe. Does he? No, he transforms them so that they begin to love the Word of God. Because it's in the Word of God they discover the fear of God. And they begin to understand the love of Christ. And they begin to understand who, who the Godhead is. And they understand who they are. It's all exposed in the Scriptures. And the ramifications of that begin to evidence itself how quickly? Immediately. It begins to evidence, evidence itself immediately, doesn't it? It's stunning how quickly it evidences itself. Sosthenes, I'm sorry, Crispus gets saved, and immediately it seems like, what happens? He goes over to Titius' house and loses everything. And as far as we can tell, he's okay with that. Sosthenes, sometime after he gets beat up, in that time frame afterwards, the Spirit gets a hold of his heart to the gospel that has been proclaimed. And evidently, not only is he converted, but it seems like he must be following and traveling with Paul. You got that, didn't you, in 1 Corinthians 1? Let me read it again. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. What Paul is saying is, simply put, Paul's writing to the, to the church at Corinth 
from somewhere else outside of Corinth, and somebody's with him. And the guy's name that's with him is who? Sosthenes. Sosthenes now is so captivated by Christ, by the Word, he's occupied by the Word, that he's what? He's out, he can't help himself. He's proclaiming the gospel. And he's going with Paul from city to city and proclaiming the gospel. So we have several examples here that are dramatic. We'll find out that Aquila and Priscilla go with him as well. We don't have any evidence of Crispus. We don't have any evidence of uh, Titius. They may very well and most likely stayed there and became part of the church and ministered in and through the church that's in Corinth. But it's striking to see what the Spirit does in these people. And what's striking about it is the contrast that we see today. And that ought to be a troubling contrast. Do you find yourself not evangelizing? Do you find yourself in fear? Do you find yourself maybe even trembling? You know what the answer is? Repentance and being occupied with the Word. Because you know what will happen? The Spirit will use the Word, because that's what He uses. And before you know it, the love of Christ will start to control you. And you know what you'll start to do? You'll start to testify. That's what will happen. You'll find yourself testifying. Now, please understand, as Jesus said, Jesus said pretty clearly, count the cost, didn't he? Because there's a cost, isn't there, in this text? Paul. How many times did he get abused? Ridiculed. Mocked. Opposed. Pretty clear. Crispus. Sosthenes. Both lost their position. Completely. You see it over and over and over again. Understand something. There's a cost. True Christianity is a cost. The silliest thing, when we understand what the Scriptures have to say, the silliest thing is not. And I'm going to close on this. The silliest thing, the most incoherent thing, is not being in the kingdom of darkness. That is not the most incoherent thing. You know what the most incoherent thing is? The most silly thing is? The most incoherent and silly thing is that we could actually think that we could be in the kingdom of light but not be occupied by the word. That is incoherent. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us how dark or how black is that darkness. It's one thing to live like a pagan, to live like an unsaved person because you are unsaved. It's one thing to be that way. Like, it doesn't bother me when I talk to an unsaved person. They say, oh, I'm hellbound. I know it, you know, and I'll just be with all my friends. That doesn't faze me because they're right. Aren't they? They're right. They've got a grasp of reality, don't they? You know what's incoherent? People who think they're believers, but when they get before Jesus, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. And many will hear that in that day. That's what's incoherent. That's absolute and utter darkness. That the whole way you could think you got it and you don't. 
The incoherence is not the other side. Those who are in the kingdom of darkness and readily acknowledge it, makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me is people who think they're in the kingdom of light, but they're not. And they're evidently not because they're not occupied with the Word. And the evidence of being occupied with the Word is not there. That's what's troubling. And friends, the call of this text is to repentantly come back not to evangelism, but come back to the Word. Come back to the Scriptures. Come back to being occupied with the Word of God because it's from there that all things flow that the Spirit does. That's what He does. That's what He uses every single time. So could I just say, friends, that's where we need to be? The call is back to the Word. The call is back to fellowship with the one who has saved us. And the only way we can be back in fellowship with the one who saved us is through the Scriptures. That is it. Through the revealed, authoritative, inspired Word of God. So let's join together in repentance, remembering, and coming back to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Because left to our own devices, we don't even realize that much of what we say and do can, if we're not caught up with the Scriptures and occupied with the Scriptures by your Spirit, much of what we say and do is nothing more than veiled forms of ridicule and opposition. That's all it is. We can dress it up. We can make it look pretty, and we oftentimes do. But it's just ridicule and opposition. Because the contrast is between ridicule and opposition and being occupied with your word. And so, Lord, I ask you to work in our lives. I pray that your spirit will move powerfully in us, giving us a desire for something we do not naturally desire. Give us a supernatural craving for what satisfies Expose to us the reality of the things that are in our lives that bring no satisfaction, but what we are deceived by. Because we know, as you said in your Gospels, that if we drink from the fountain of life, or drink from the fountain of living water, out of us will flow rivers of living water. And so, Lord, I pray you'll help us to drink and continue to drink of your truth. In your name I pray. Amen.